You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. Over the last 20 years, statins have become one of the best-selling pharmaceuticals of all time. One drug company claims that over 36 million Americans are candidates for statin drug therapy. Because statins are well tolerated and easy to administer, they have very good patient acceptance. Listen in as we take a close look at statin safety. Welcome to Lipid Luminations. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. James McKenney, Professor Emeritus with Virginia Commonwealth University and member of the National Cholesterol Education Program, coordinating and executive committees from its inception in 1985, and member of the adult treatment panels. Dr. McKenney is the immediate past president of the National Lipid Association. Welcome to the show, Dr. McKenney. Well, good morning, Dr. Caswell. Good to be here. So statins have been around for a long time. They're pretty well tolerated, and uh, according to the National Lipid Association, they're quite safe. Is that correct? Well, we certainly think that, but you know the perception, as you well know, because this is a part of your practice as well, I believe, perception often by the public with the direct-to-consumer advertising, with lots of information, perhaps misinformation on the web. And even the perception by some physicians has brought into question some issues around safety. So the National Lipid Association felt like it wanted to do a very thorough, top-to-bottom review of this topic, even though we felt intuitively that these were very safe drugs. Was that a report that recently came out in the last year, and I think Dr. Davidson was involved with that? Dr. Davidson was involved. We published this in the April issue, 2006, of the American Journal of Cardiology. The whole supplement is on safety, and people have really raved about what we had to say there. Lots of different people were involved. We had expert panels and specialists doing commissioned research for us. So it was a a very broad sweep look at this topic. How many patients or how many prescriptions were studied under this safety panel? Well, you know, we went to many different databases. We looked at every single NDA database with several thousand patients representing each of the submissions by the various manufacturers for their statin. We looked at the adverse event reporting system uh, from the FDA, of course, involves millions of reports. We went into a managed care database and looked at some 800,000 files of patients taking statins who were hospitalized. Some of them were hospitalized with what could have been side effects. And so we we really did a broad sweep with literally millions of people under view. I've been prescribing these medicines for 15 years, and let's talk about liver toxicity. I, I don't think I've ever had to take a patient off of these meds for elevated liver enzymes, which is one of the fears. So how often does this cause liver damage, and is that liver damage actually reversible or irreversible? Well, I'm glad to hear you say what you did, because I think that it really should be the way it is, but I know that I have spoken to other physicians who are quite concerned about this, and I hear that patients are coming into their office, uh, physician's offices now with notes taking down their liver function test. Right. They, they always say, I don't want anything that's going to damage my liver. So the issue is important. Again, perception perhaps is the more issue here. We took a very close look at this. The, the rate is, you're exactly right, quite low. Less than 1% of patients have a significant elevation in transaminase levels, something greater than three times the upper limit of normal. The one exception to that is at the top dose of statins, the 80-milligram dose, there may be as many as 2% or 3% of patients with this finding. But they're all asymptomatic, and it leads us to believe that perhaps they have less significance. So that prompted us to look a little further. 
into the topic. Well, let's talk about the higher doses. Should we, as practicing physicians and lipidologists, be using the most potent statin with the lowest dose to get patients to goal so we can avoid toxicities? Well, really interestingly, when you look at the potency or the efficacy of lowering cholesterol and compare that to the rate of elevations in liver function tests, we find there's no relationship. That is, the most efficacious drug, regardless of what dose you use, is not necessarily more toxic to the liver. In fact, the reverse may be true. It follows much more along the lines, as I suggested, of the dose. The higher the blood level, the higher the dose, the greater the the chance that there may be some changes in liver function. Test, not necessarily liver function, as we found. One of the individuals that we had to look at this is Dr. Law from the UK. He found a very interesting thing, I think, that teaches something to clinicians. And that is that if you document the number of elevations in liver function tests in a population of people, in his case, he looked at 90,000 people on a statin and found that 300 only had an elevation in liver function tests greater than three times the upper limit of normal. If he replicated that, and look for a consecutive elevation, he could only find that in 100 people. In other words, two-thirds of patients, as we know, have transient changes while taking almost any medicine, including a statin. And so his point, and I think it's really important for all of us to, to think this through, and that is we shouldn't react to one number. We should really monitor these changes to see if they are, in fact, transient and dissipating spontaneously. You mentioned monitoring. Where does the National Lipid Association now fall in terms of the frequency of monitoring? Well, that brings up maybe the last point I'll make here, which was a a significant finding for us. Why do we monitor in the first place? Of course, we monitor because the package inserts, prescribing information, advise that we should be doing that. And so we dutifully do it, depending on the particular statin. It may be at baseline and every change in therapy or up in dose or after six months of treatment, but periodically throughout the course of that patient's treatment. The reason we're doing that, we assume, is because we're looking for acute liver failure or hepatitis. And so what we looked at was the incidence of this in the FDA database. And what we found was that acute liver failure is reported to the FDA about one time per million persons. And when we looked at the same rate or looked for the rate in a non-statin, normal population, we found that the rate of acute liver failure was also about one per million. In other words, you are not able, we're not able to discern a statin effect versus a non-statin effect. It may be an idiosyncratic effect that's going to occur irrespective of whether the patient's on a statin. So to answer your question, based on that information, we think that the FDA should rescind this recommendation to monitor liver function tests. It doesn't necessarily help us, and it seems it may present us with a dilemma that could lead to the withdrawal of therapy that has enormous gain with very little evidence of direct hepatotoxicity. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. I'm talking today with Dr. James McKenney, the immediate past president of the National Lipid Association. We're currently talking about the effects of statins on liver enzymes. I recently read an article maybe a month or two ago showing that statins actually can be beneficial in helping liver enzymes in patients with chronic hepatitis C. Exactly. In fact, our liver expert panel that worked with us 
although that wasn't their commission, and we didn't go beyond the safety issue. They did add a sentence in the end of their of their recommendations, which basically said they believe that these medications should not be avoided, in fact, may be useful in patients with a variety of liver abnormalities. I had a patient with terrible coronary artery disease and primary biliary cirrhosis, and I had to decide what's more likely to kill this patient, heart disease or liver disease, and it was heart disease, and so I put her on a statin, and she's fine, and her liver enzymes are fine. It comes down to that exactly, exactly what you just said. It comes down to the risk-benefit analysis. If you do that, and you do that consistently, I think you come up with the same conclusion that you just made. Let's move on to the other concerns with statins, and that is muscle aches. We all tell our patients that if they develop any muscle aches, they should tell us because we want to make sure they're not developing any uh, serious muscle problems or, or myositis. Again, is there one statin that's more likely to do it than the other, or is it the same story in terms of higher doses? The answer is yes and no, but let me just tell you the same paradigm that I, I talked about with liver also applies to muscle, and that is the more efficacious or the more potent the statin doesn't necessarily produce more toxicity to the muscle. And the reason, as far as we can tell, is that the efficacy occurs because of an inhibition of cholesterol synthesis in the hepatocyte. The toxicity appears to occur, or at least correlate, with the level of statin inhibiting uh, HMG-coagulatase concentration in the blood. So it's two different environments, if you would, that are uh, related here and not necessarily related. But there does appear to be differences. And in all of the major studies with provostatin, or provocol, Uh, Three major studies now, some 15,000-plus patients in randomized clinical trial, there hasn't been one case of rhabdomyolysis reported. That doesn't mean that that drug doesn't produce it because we, in the FDA database, it does produce that. In our analysis of the claims database, it does occur, but the incidence is quite low. Conversely, simvastatin, Zocor, at its very top dose, seems to produce it a little bit more often, although still in a range that's considered to be safe something like 0.1% in the A to Z trial, for example. So there seems to be some differences. It may have different, be because of different lipid solubility parameters, different metabolism of the drug, etc. But I think the key, again, is it's likely to be dose-related that translates into a concentration in the blood. What should we do with our patients that do develop the myalgias? Should we stop the statin and rechallenge, or should we go with some of these other kind of treatments that we've come up with along the years, trying them on CoQ10? Wondering if you could elaborate on CoQ10. And, and I've recently read that vitamin D might also be helpful for some of these muscle aches since, since a billion people are vitamin D deficient. We're all grappling with those questions And boy, I wish I had a nice clean answer for you. We did look at CoQ10 or ubiquinone, it's called, extensively. The literature, the evidence base, unfortunately, Dr. Casco, as you know, is is very weak and doesn't leave us with very clear direction. I thought some of the most interesting work that's been done is in the use of statins in cancer patients where the doses are in the 200 to 300 milligram a day level where muscle aches and pains occur practically in every person. And in that environment, the ubiquinone or a CoQ10 supplement had practically no effect, whether you give it as a prophylaxis to prevent or to give it to a person with myopathy to treat. In the studies that have been done, most of them have been testimonials and observational and really doesn't give us clear direction. The few of really good, well-controlled trials are conflicting. 
but one at least has shown some reduction in pain scores in a small number of patients. By the way, compared to, uh, to vitamin D, didn't seem to help, but uh, their CoQ10 and their population seemed to help in reducing the pain but not obliterating the pain. I think we're still left with no answer here, and unfortunately, the resign that perhaps most of us have and the resign that the task force had was CoQ10 is not likely to produce side effects. So that if the patient wished to try that or did so on their own and got some success, that's fine. But we certainly don't feel we have any power to recommend it as a treatment. On that note, unfortunately, we're out of time. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. James McKenney. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Illuminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.